0: Weekend is taking a little break, so this week we've picked some of our favourite pieces from the last few months, just in case you missed them. Coming up, two stories about secrets, lies and what happens when the people we trust turn out to have hidden motives. In this episode, Joe Gibson reveals a troubling affair he had as a student with a teacher that changed his life. And comedian Michelle Brazier explains why she befriended her scammer. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Joe Gibson was 17, at school, and hoping to get the grades that would earn him a place at Oxford. In this extract from his memoir, he recounts how a casual flirtation with his 35-year-old teacher turned into something far more serious, read by Jeffrey Newland. Just a warning, this article includes scenes of a sexual nature and a description of grooming. Please take care while listening. Joe Gibson is a pseudonym. Details have been changed to protect people's identities.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com newsadfree.
2: That's 15% off at burrow.com slash acast.
3: Just going out to see Nick, friend from school. Might stay over. Bye. Ned and Celia, the friends I'm staying with, barely look up from their enormous dining table, and I'm out the door. I take the most direct route, sob being seen. I ring a bell, and I'm buzzed in. My Spanish teacher, Miss P, Ali is standing in the doorway, looking flustered. She grabs my hand and pulls me in, kicking the door shut behind me. And before I can say a word, or take off my jacket, she's kissing me. We stand in the hallway for ages, just snogging. Once or twice she holds my head and looks at me intently, then kisses me again. I forget trying to find words to say, and let myself soar. Then, without hesitation or any look or pause, she takes me to her bedroom and undresses me. I undress her, and there we are, naked. Very naked. I want to make excuses for looking ridiculous with swimming trunk tan lines and not being built like the first fifteen boys. Perhaps sensing my self-consciousness, she speaks, and her voice is warm and sexy. Your hair is lighter. It's the sun, I expect, and my sister dyed it. It really doesn't matter. You're- I want to say something nice in return. I don't care that I'm looking her up and down. I'm probably salivating like a cartoon dog. But I can't believe she's all naked in front of me. I say the first thing, anything, that comes into my head. You're completely naked and your skin's all olivey and milky. When we have sex, it is slow and gentle. Probably a good thing, because anything more energetic and it would be all over very quickly for me. Afterwards, we talk for a bit. She tells me she wrote to me not long after I went to Italy for the Easter break to tell me to forget about her and that nothing could happen between us. But then she says that in one of my postcards I wrote about going to a party with some Italian teenagers and she didn't like that and then she couldn't stop thinking about it. I tell her how I felt being so far away and that I was aching to get back even though I didn't know what would be waiting for me. We don't say much more. We look at each other, a lot. Then we sleep. When we at last venture out of the bedroom, it's already after midday. We don't bother dressing. Miss P doesn't open the big shutters, which I find exciting, like we're fugitives. We listen to music, talk about books, eat and drink and fuck. Then... As the sky darkens, we return to the bedroom. We do exactly the same the next day and night, and I'm in heaven. By the third morning, I know all about her family, where she went to school and what she did at university, that she had a serious long-term relationship when she was in her 20s, but it ended badly, how she fell in love with Spain and would love to show me Barcelona. I tell her quite a few things as well, but I can't compete. At 17, I don't have anything like as much to say about my life. Really, I haven't started living it properly yet, and she's 35 after all. So I tell her mainly about my dreams and ambitions to be a singer or an actor, and that when I was younger, I wanted to be a ballet dancer or racing driver that I'm excited about trying for an Oxford scholarship next year, but crapping myself about the entrance exams. I tell her, again, about my parents' separation, and how that came so soon after my mother's cancer treatment, that my parents enrolled me in this school, or the top public school, as mum insists on telling everyone, 150 miles from my home, that she will be moving house in the summer, so that I'll be living with her for my final year. That I haven't spoken to Dad since Christmas. I tell her about my uncle, and that I want to go sailing with him when I've finished school. Perhaps even across the Atlantic. That evening, I put my clothes back on, and this time, when we hold each other by the front door, I'm not sad or frustrated. Everything has changed again, but it feels good. See you at school. I grin. It is in the spring of 1992 that what starts as a casual flirtation between me and Miss P becomes rapidly more intimate. Partnering her in the dance review, the lift home in her car, the kiss goodbye, and finally... Just before the end of term, the invitation to her flat, where one thing leads to another, and an afternoon on her sofa, sees a lot more than kissing. Have a lovely time in Italy, she says as I go out the door, after that first time. You too, I reply automatically. When can I see you again? I want to ask, but I'm afraid of the answer. I started to speak, but she beats me to it. Don't get seen. Just walk straight out and down the road. And listen, don't tell anyone. She grabs my sleeve. You won't tell anyone, will you? It has to be a secret. When school resumes, every lesson starts with a lecture about how academically crucial this term is how the exams coming up are of critical significance for our final year and will determine not only what places we might be able to secure at university, but have a bearing of great magnitude on our career prospects, which in turn will impact on the house we hope to buy, the car we drive, the clothes we wear, whom we marry, the holidays we take, the lives of our children and children's children. A group of us share stories of our Easter breaks. Tom's off-piste skiing in Courcheval. Chris's driving lessons with the promise of a new car if he gets straight A's this term. Ant's National Youth Orchestra Tour. I mention Italy, but don't get very far. Everyone wants to talk about Glastonbury. Who's going? Who's got a tent? Which bands are playing? I lie back and stare up at the pale, cloudless sky and let them get on with it. They can jump ahead but I'm quite happy losing myself in thoughts of last weekend. Nick is speculating about which girls from our year group might be going to the festival. I tune in, but a part of me wants to jump up and yell, Who gives a shit about those girls? I fucked Miss P. What do you think of that? Boom. The look on their faces would be priceless. Maybe I wouldn't say fucked. It's too harsh slept with made love to what are you grinning about joe i look up again they're all staring at me nothing i mumble then add girls this seems to satisfy them and they return to their conversation the fact is i can never will never tell them about me and miss p So, you're coming to my sketching classes, she says, referring to the extracurricular activity she's going to be running on Thursday afternoons. We're lying in bed. She's on her back, and I'm wrapped around her, stroking her breasts. I call them breasts now, not tits. More grown-up. We've been in bed for over an hour, and it's still not dark. We didn't even finish the first glass of wine. Did you get many sign-ups? I ask, hoping not. Actually only four. Still too many. I bury my head in her pillow. Hey, at least we'll be spending time together. She slides out of bed and disappears to the bathroom. I stare at the ceiling and try not to ask myself questions. But they come. Like, what is this? How did it happen? What's next? I don't have any answers, so I lie back and distract myself with the sounds in her flat. In her road. The toilet flushes. It's weird, but sort of sexy. We stay up late, sitting on the living room floor, with pizza and chocolate and wine. Would you like to watch a film? she asks and crawls over to a box by the television. I join to inspect her collection. It's mostly European cinema and the odd costume drama. We select Manon des Source and snuggle up on the sofa. Halfway through the film she asks, How are you going to get home? Home? What? Tomorrow? You can't stay here tonight, you know that. You've... we've... both got school tomorrow. I'm gutted. I thought I'd be staying here tonight. Do I have to go? We can't risk you being seen in the morning. Some of the teachers use this road as a cut through. You could easily be spotted. She's practical when I want her to be apologetic and as disappointed as me. I'll walk then. I get up. Wait, you don't have to go yet, she protests. There's the rest of the film. No, thanks, it's too late. I would better go. I feel hurt and stupider by the minute. I take my clothes into the bathroom and dress quickly. She doesn't knock. When I come out, she's standing by the door. I'm sorry, she says and kisses my face. We just have to be so careful. You understand, don't you? We mustn't attract attention. I understand, I repeat robotically. I leave and walk home... Straight through the school campus, smoking. I'm embarrassed by my behaviour, and it's made worse when I have Miss P for Spanish, last lesson on Saturday morning. She has the expressionless statue face down to a T, giving nothing away, whereas I'm feeling crap about last night. It was so childish of me to strop out, but I'd waited all week to be with her. She could have said something earlier in the evening, then I'd have known what was coming. She goes around handing back our exercise books and places mine in front of me, with her body and face turned away. She almost imperceptibly taps the cover twice with her index finger. Something tells me not to open the book, so I put it in my bag. Back in the house, no one around. I dig it out. I don't find anything at first... But one of the pages catches as I'm leafing through, and out falls a tiny quarter size envelope with a single J on the front. Inside, a little card. Sorry, come back tonight for a proper night. Kiss, kiss. It's November 1992. I stand in her sitting room in my blazer and tie. My school bag still hooked over my shoulder. Allie's by the windows, closing the shutters. Despite her efforts, they don't close fully. There are always gaps. She gives up, drops her arms by her sides, and looks at me. At last. I'm pregnant. How? Is all I can ask. My bag slipping. You tell me how. Obviously you weren't telling the truth. "'What? What does that mean?' "'I can hear my voice rising already. "'You said your balls didn't drop until you were in your teens,' she says, adding, "'or something,' sounding equally defensive and on the attack. "'And that means, because I read about it, I assumed—' "'You assumed what?' "'I cut her off, my words thick in my throat, slow with disbelief, "'my neck burning, my bag straps slipping through damp hands.' That you couldn't have children, she says, in a tone only fractionally less certain than before. I stare at the floor, don't answer for a whole minute. I want to scream. Is this a fucking joke? What fucking planet are you actually on? Instead, I just stand there, my head ringing in alarm. I dare not open my mouth until the voice in my head has stopped swearing. It's a phrase, a thing you say, that's all. I'm struggling to find the right words, made harder by the realisation that this grown-up, someone twice my age, a teacher for God's sake, doesn't know this. My eyes fixed to a spot on the carpet, I say, It's basic biology, Ali, how don't... I mean, didn't you study puberty? Yes, but... I glance up. Now she's staring at the carpet. I haven't seen this look on her face before. I don't know what to say or do. Shit! She groans, then sweeps past me into the bathroom, leaving me alone, with the distinct impression I'm still on the wrong side of an argument I didn't start. Is this my fault? I ask out loud. To an empty room.
0: We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?
0: Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Joe Gibson's gripping memoir, 17.
3: I stay with Ali after the abortion. She isn't hungry, so we don't eat. I run her a bath and listen at the door in case she needs anything. I expect to hear her crying, releasing her emotions now she's home but there's no sound from the bathroom, except for the occasional splash. In bed, we don't touch, but she accepts a kiss before turning over to lie on her back. Despite the exhaustion, I can't sleep for ages. Then, when I do, I'm awoken by Ally moving about, restless. We say goodbye in the morning, both of us with red-rimmed, sleep-deprived eyes. I could stay a bit longer if you like, I say, although if I'm being honest, I would quite like to go home. It's fine, I probably need some time on my own today. We hold each other in the corridor by her front door. I'm sorry, we say at the same time, which is awkward. It's strange how both saying sorry makes it sound less meaningful, but she manages a fragile laugh. She strokes the side of my head. Please don't ever leave me, will you? She says, her eyes searching mine for an answer. And don't ever tell anyone. Of course not, I say. What else can I say? As autumn gives way to winter, I decide to take my lead from Ali about the abortion. If she wants to talk things through, I'm ready for it, though it's still messing with my head, and I don't really know what I can or should say. It's been six weeks now, and she never brings it up. Instead, she talks for ages about her year groups, which is boring, about some of the other teachers. They're even more weird than I thought, and what she thinks about the pupils in my Spanish class mainly about the stack of exams she must mark over the holiday. Including yours, she says, pointedly. Finally, she asks, so do you think you've got a place at Oxford then? I'm pleased she's taken an interest. At last, in the entrance exam I sat a few weeks earlier, although her tone gives her away. She's obviously not really interested. Dunno, I shrug. I wasn't very focused. Huh, she mutters, lifting her coffee cup to her mouth, looking away as she sips. Why not? I stare at her across the breakfast table. Well, because of what happened. Just before. What do you mean? A slight frown appears, and it hits me that her question is genuine shift uncomfortably, feeling too big for my chair. You know, the baby. Sorry, what? Ali's eyebrows shoot up. Her voice remains controlled, low, but the atmosphere in the room cools several degrees. Are you... Please tell me you're not going to make that all about you, because... No, no, of course not. I cut in. Because, just to be clear... That would be inappropriate. She looks down at the table, like she's thinking hard about her next words, like she might be giving me difficult feedback on a homework assignment. She lifts her head. I feel so small under her glare. It was my body, and you don't see me whinging, do you? Later, we make up, in bed, in our usual way. Thank you for asking about Oxford anyway, I say, when I think it's safe enough to do so. I know you're not that interested. You do understand why, don't you? Her hand patters across the faint hairs on my chest. No, I don't, actually. Seriously? Her hand pauses. Isn't it obvious? Um... If you go to Oxford, what happens to me? What will I do? Had you thought about that? The fact is, she's probably right. I haven't had the energy to think about what happens to me, and her, us, if I get into Oxford. Does it have to be the end just because I'm not nearby? I figure now is not the moment to repeat my plans for deferring my university place and taking a gap year sailing across the Atlantic. When I leave the flat that afternoon, my mind is spinning. One minute, I'm on a complete high, fueled with adrenaline from 24 hours with Ali. Next minute, the roller coaster is plummeting because, as usual, I've opened my stupid mouth, rammed my foot in it, made a dreadful mess, wasted our precious time with my immaturity. When will I grow up? If my night with Ali was hard, it's not much easier when I get home. In fact, it's never easy these days, since Mum moved closer and I had to leave Ned and Celia's. It's only been a few months, but it feels like a lifetime. The dutiful son back at home, no longer free to roam. Or at least, no longer free to see Ali as much. As if I couldn't feel more crap about myself, Mum is waiting for me in the kitchen with an odd expression on her face, sort of pity and disappointment rolled into one tilt of the head. In front of her, on the dining table, is an envelope. I'm sorry, she says, her eyes following my gaze to the letter. You didn't get into Oxford. What? How do you know? I opened it completely by mistake, sweetie, she says, very quickly, on the defensive Jesus, Mum! At Christmas, Ali suggests it's time to take things further. I'm excited, but a bit confused, so she spells it out. She thinks we should get engaged. And she doesn't hang about. By New Year's Eve, she's been to a jeweller, and I've blown my entire savings, £775, on a ring. As the spring term gets underway, we reprise our roles at school, maintain a vigilant distance, like hitting the reset button, except now we're carrying an even bigger secret around with us. The story is she had a whirlwind reunion with her fictional Spanish boyfriend Carlos over the Christmas break and, ta-da, he proposed. Meanwhile, I've put that City of Dreaming Spires fantasy behind me. As Ali said, what would happen to her if I went to study in another city for three or four years? We're engaged now. It wouldn't be fair. For now, I'm keeping everything crossed for an offer from the local uni, which I should hear about soon. The only hitch is Mum, who's made it clear she still expects me home on time and at weekends, insisting my grades are more important than ever, that this is no time for slacking off. Listen, I've had an idea, Ali says one day at school, her voice animated. I've got the perfect solution to kill two birds with one stone. What do you mean? She explains quickly, as a low hum of voices and hurrying feet builds in the corridor outside. The two birds are my grades and our lack of time together. Her idea is risky. In fact, it sounds like complete madness. Okay, so I'm going to write to your mother, or maybe I'll phone her, she begins. Whoa, whoa. you're going to call my mum? Don't interrupt. I'm going to propose giving you some private tutorials to get your grades back on track. Wait a minute, I say. There's no chance she's going to pay for private lessons on top of my school fees. Ah, that's where you're wrong, she claps her hands. Because I won't be charging, and anyway, I'll make it seem like it's her idea. She'll feel as though she's enlisting my help. Hang on, hang on, how? I run a hand over my hair and down my neck, trying to keep up. I can't see how this is Mum's idea. I haven't got to the best bit yet. The other bird. She drums on her desk. Where do you think these tutorials are going to take place? She grins. At your place? Wrong, at yours. She laughs and my jaw drops open. Are you kidding me? That will blow our cover. Not with this, it won't. She holds up her ring finger, wiggling it with the pad of her thumb, so that the diamond catches the light. Won't she be delighted for me when I tell her the happy news about me and Carlos? I'm about to answer, when the door swings wide open and an unstoppable herd of uniforms and bags piles in. Right, thank you, handed in by next lesson, I hear Ali call. As I'm spun out of the room by the twist of bodies. Home tutoring works just as Ali planned, and eventually increases to weekly visits. It's great, especially when Mum disappears and we can slip into my bedroom, though I have mixed feelings when I watch Mum and Ali chatting away like friends over coffee. I've lost count of the number of lies we've told, so I can't tell whether it's bad or harmless that we've pulled mum into our web. What I am sure of is that I've split myself in two. I've carved out two distinct versions of me. Old me, who goes to school, sits in lessons, does homework, sings in chapel, chats to the lads about nothing important. Other me, who exists in a parallel universe of secrecy Orbiting Alley, lying on demand, pretending I'm not a teenager, but a real grown-up man. Then, the worst happens. We are exposed. It's a couple of weeks before school breaks up for Easter. I'm in the library, working on a German essay about Schubert, which I intend to regurgitate in the A-level written exam next term. From the other end of the long room, I hear the door open and close emphatically, then feet walking hurriedly down the aisle. I look up. It's Ali. I'm not overly surprised to see her. She has a copy of my timetable, so that she always knows where I am, if she needs me. In a study period like today, the library is a good bet. Her face is white, and she's lost her composure. Furtively glancing around, checking the other bays behind mine to make sure we're alone, she sinks into a chair on the opposite side of the table, head in her hands. I've just been spoken to, she begins, her breath catching in her throat as she tries to gather herself. At break, in the staff room, a warning, Jesus! She throws her head back, lips pursed tightly, Eyes wet at their rims, wide as though she's fighting the impulse to blink. A warning? About what? I say, frowning. Us, she says, breathing heavily, staring at me, before wiping her eyes with her hand. Someone, Mr Roberts, the teacher who spoke to her wouldn't say who, told him that someone else had told him that they'd heard Ali had been seen with a pupil, I ask where we've been seen, by whom, and who are all these teachers spreading this shit. It's a rumour mill, she says wearily, like it's not her first time. And evidently it's on the move, if that many people are talking. Shit. Shit. Shit, is all I can say. Yes, exactly, shit, she adds. Over the following days... Paranoia grows inside me. In every lesson, every assembly, at lunch in the dining hall, in the library, I see faces staring at me, eyeing me with suspicion, and I'm convinced they all know. The whole school. Any minute there will be a summons to the headmaster's office, and that will be that. I'll be out. And shit, what about Allie? Will she lose her job? Or worse, face the police. Ali said once that our relationship isn't illegal, so they can't lock her up or anything. Soon, it hits me. The teachers are ignoring me. They don't return my greetings in the corridor. When I have my hand up in class, I am overlooked. Then... Mr Grice makes a snide comment when addressing the German set about final preparations for the written exams. "'Everyone needs to pull out all the stops to score highly in these papers. There are no shortcuts, at least not if you're studying German.' He pauses, shuffles something around on his desk, then adds, not looking up. "'Perhaps it's different if you're taking another language and getting special attention.' None of the others appear to register the comment, but he may as well have walked over and landed a massive fist in my gut. Next, my other German teacher, Mr. Siddle, someone who, Ali tells me, has always had a thing for her, starts picking on me. He takes any opportunity to single me out with particularly difficult questions, usually around grammar, "'Got a bit of a dandruff problem, haven't you, Gibson?' "'He says out of the blue one day. "'You want to get that treated?' "'He persists as several bottoms shift uneasily in their seats. "'Then again, it's all part of being an adolescent, isn't it?' "'The silence that follows seems to stretch on and on. "'I try to breathe calm and steady.' Hold my nerve, but I fail. I snap. I might be an adolescent, but at least I'm not a cunt. The next morning, after house assembly, when all the boys have dispersed, my tutor, Mr Batsford, calls me into his office. I sit, numb, in the chair on the other side of his desk, awaiting the inevitable bollocking. But it doesn't come. Instead, he considers me through steepled fingers pressed to his mouth. I don't know what's going on, and in many ways I don't want to know. What I do know is that you can't call a teacher a, that word, even if we've all been close on occasion, he adds in muffled tones. Am I going to be expelled, sir? What? Lord, no. You're going to stay, sit your exams, do your best, and keep your head down. After another weary pause, he continues, I've heard what people, my colleagues, have been muttering, and I have to tell you I don't like mutterings. Gossip, tittle-tattle, he says with feeling. However, they've been hard to ignore, these things that are being talked about, about you and Miss... So... I decided to speak to her myself. At this, he hoists himself upright while I sink lower. I am content with what she told me. The extra tuition was requested, I understand, by your mother. I respect why Miss P decided to keep this arrangement under her proverbial hat. She also explained the reason you've been seen with her off-campus. His tone changes, softens, I just wish you'd come to me first, Joseph, when you were experiencing these difficulties at home. I had no idea how your parents' divorce was affecting you. I was thinking about you this morning, about everything you've told me, my friend Pete says, one day in the spring of 2010. I am 34, living on a canal boat, out of my depth and on my own, for the first time in 17 years. Pete and I have been meeting up every weekend since I arrived on The Cut, with me cycling along the canal to his mooring. It's not therapy, he says. He's just happy to listen. He's watched me fall and picked me up, got me back on a level of sorts. You realise, don't you, he continues, if that happened in a school today, there'd be police... Lawyers. A court case. It's a criminal offence and there's a good reason for that. Look at the toll it's taken on you. No wonder you're not over it. It's abuse, lad. Oh, come on, Pete. I-, I let it happen. It takes two. Don't even finish the two to tango bollocks. It's not the point. She was 35. You were 17, for Christ's sake. A kid. What I want to know is what happened next. I mean, you were still with her when you left school. When did it end? I sip my beer and turn sideways so I can look out onto the bank and the bridge. I stroke my hand across my face and cup my chin. About four weeks ago, I run Pete through the main events of the intervening years. How she convinced me not to take my gap year and go straight to university. How three years later, aged 21, I stumbled out of there with a second-class degree, a ring on my finger, a sensible haircut, and a one-year-old in a buggy. Wait, what? You had a baby while you were still a student? Yeah. I shake my head. Married at the end of my first year. Baby at the end of my second year. Fuck! Heat fills the cabin with noise. That third year was surreal. Ali was still teaching and I would have to bring the baby into school at break times so Ali could feed him. I'd stand there in the staff room, a pariah, surrounded by my former teachers. I always expected someone to voice their disapproval, make a snide remark, but no, they never said anything just blanked me. Wow, do you think they were in denial? Possibly. Uh, That is the default position of those types of schools. Ali left teaching as soon as she got pregnant with our second. I think the school was only too glad to see the back of her. How they let her stay when our first was born, I still don't really know. Perhaps they were anxious about repercussions if they made her redundant, even despite the circumstances. Posh school sacks pregnant teacher wouldn't have been an attractive headline. After that, I changed jobs every couple of years, chasing the bigger salary to keep everyone happy. Everyone being Ali and her parents. Basically, she made the decisions. We were living according to her plan. I explain how, eventually, I burnt out. A midlife crisis, I suppose. Except I was about 15 or 20 years before most men. The doctor signed me off work with exhaustion. The strain chipped away. As much as I loved being a dad, I was failing as a husband. Failed as a son, too. All those lies. I was numb inside. Bit by bit, the barrel of my life was emptying, and then, something happened. I began to see a new path opening before me, or at least a path that diverged from Ellie's. For years, I still believed a time would come for our adventures, that we would leave the cul-de-sac of our life and try something different with the kids, live somewhere new, another part of the country, another country entirely, but she had no intention of changing her life. Peter and I sit staring at the deck, both locked in our own thoughts. ''I have to ask,'' he says at last, lifting his head. ''While you're beating yourself up about the past, what's Sally doing? I mean, does she even feel guilty about what she did?'' ''Ha! <laughs> Are you kidding?'' I snort. ''Not for a second! No way!'' Lately, of course, she's just focused on her anger towards me for leaving her. I get that. But Ali feel guilty. Ali take responsibility for how this all started. Not a chance, as far as she's concerned. This is all on me.
0: That was an edited extract from Seventeen, written by Joe Gibson and read by Geoffrey Newland. Seventeen is available to buy via The Guardian Bookshop. If you need any support following this article, we'll include a link on the episode page at theguardian.com. Finally, when Australian comedian Michelle Brazier contacted the seller of a Pilates reformer she had bought online, she had no idea it'd be the start of an unlikely and troubling friendship. Read by Sarah Aubrey. Listen,
4: 2020 wasn't my best year. I spent a lot of time in my bathtub, actually a large clear storage tub in the bottom of my shower, eating bread I certainly didn't make, and watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Clear plastic, I discovered to my horror, is a material that fares best when it doesn't have your flesh pressed right up against it. So I made a healthy decision to buy some workout equipment online and slowly wean myself off bath time. Looking on Facebook Marketplace, I found a Pilates reformer, a sort of bed-on-rails, a lie-down trampoline with resistance straps for your arms and legs. They are usually very expensive, at least 2,000 Australian dollars, 1,560 pounds, but this one was listed for $500. Absolute bargain! The seller was a man named Jacob, not his real name, in Adelaide. Thousands of kilometres away from me in Melbourne, and certainly beyond the five-kilometre radius the lockdown allowed us to travel. No matter, he would courier it. Legend. Jacob looked like the kind of guy you'd warn your friend not to date. His profile revealed lots of pictures of him partying with his mates, trips to Bali, nights out at the casino with the lads, lads, lads. He sold me the Pilates reformer and he used his own profile with his real name. This was a public profile that was 10 years old. 10 years worth of data. So I felt confident in transferring him the cash, despite only having seen the merchandise online. Before I clicked go on the purchase, I already had his friends' and parents' names, his football club, gym and workplace. I knew that he summered on the Gold Coast, went to a private school, and enjoyed the movie Step Brothers*. I transferred Jacob $500. It isn't millions, but I work in the arts, so it's quite a big chunk of cash for me. In fact, I've never had a spare $500 before, and this story will probably serve as evidence as to why I probably won't again. The day after I sent Jacob the money, I sent him a message Hey Jake, just wondering if I can grab the shipping info. Hi Michelle, the guy's been delayed, but I will send it through on Monday. Guess what happened on Monday? Nada. On Tuesday, I gently nudged him. Hey Jake, just looking for an update on the reformer. Sorry to hassle you. Sorry to hassle you? Why are women? So sorry Michelle, he's been delayed again. He will pick it up on Thursday, along with some other equipment I'm sending through to Melbourne. Thursday came and went. As the days crept by, Jacob made excuse after excuse as to why the reformer hadn't arrived yet. And it started to dawn on me that maybe this was too good to be true? Maybe I was being scammed. I knew I... I should probably go to the police. And I threatened to do it too. Listen, mate, I don't know what's going on in your life, but it's becoming clear to me that you're trying to scam me out of my money. You've used your real profile to scam me. You must know how easy it is for me to report you. So what I'm really interested in is how you got to such a difficult place in your life that you were willing to be so reckless. You don't have to tell me what's going on but you do have to give me my money back within the next three days or I'm going to the cops. And if you do want to tell me what's going on, we're in lockdown over here in Melbourne. I've got nothing but time. He told me the last few months had been a scary time, mental health-wise. And I felt a pang of guilt, which is ridiculous, but I still felt it. He hinted that he was feeling like he might want to opt out of this life, And I felt worried for him. I felt responsible. Jacob FaceTimed me after I messaged him. I was surprised to see such a vulnerable and sad man on the other end of the call. And he was very surprised to see The Girl One from his favourite Australian sketch comedy group, Auntie Donna. Not only was I being scammed by a very sad man, this was the kind of person who watches the TV shows I'm in. This was my audience.' great. Jacob begged me for more time, said he needed just two more weeks, but after that, he would send me a refund. He refused to admit out loud that he had scammed me, but it was this sort of unspoken thing between us. He made excuses like, the courier is just really busy. Excuses he knew I didn't believe. I just wanted my refund, and in return, I wouldn't go to the police. He sent me a picture of his ID to hold on to as collateral, and asked me to make a video saying hello to his mate who loves my comedy. I didn't make the video. Two weeks came and went, and guess what? No cash. But something else happened in those two weeks. We had started sort of joking with each other via Facebook Messenger, checking in to see how lockdown was treating me. Not well, Jake. It's week 11 of lockdown two, And how life was treating him. And now that it was clear that he had indeed tried to scam me using his actual Facebook profile, like an amateur, I wanted to ask him questions. Why did he think he could get away with this when he was so easy to find? But that's the thing. It wasn't that he thought he could get away with it. He just didn't think at all. It wasn't about the long term for him. It was desperation. It was about survival. He slowly told me his history of gambling, drinking and drug abuse. He was never specific about what happened. He would just say sweeping things like, my missus left me when I went out and blew 40 grand in one night. But when I asked him how he could lose that much money so quickly, he would just shrug it off. I suppose he didn't know how. Maybe if he did, he wouldn't be in this position. He struck me as more of a toddler than a grown man. From what I can piece together, Jacob would scam someone and then sort it out when it caught up with him by gambling or begging from his family. He would start new fires in an attempt to put out others. I was interested in how a person ends up like this more interested than I was in going to the police and getting my money back. I asked him how his family were. Did they still speak to him? Had he had a relapse? What was he looking forward to? Anything to keep him talking, and, if I'm honest, to keep him alive. As Jacob stalled on giving me my money back, he answered my questions more and more freely, offering vulnerability in place of payment. He owed all his friends, family, and co-workers money. He had talked his way out of plenty of failed investments and forgotten repayments. We spoke regularly, and suddenly we were becoming something else. Something like friends. Just two people who every now and then would message each other normal things like, "'I hope you're getting the help you need.' "'I'm running out of second chances. I have to go to the police soon.' And yeah, my friend Luke bought a jet ski, so we've been getting around on that, which is pretty sick, distracting me from a menti bee. I didn't trust him. I didn't even like him, but I was curious about him. I like to dress it up as altruism, but it's possible that I was just slowing down to drive past a car crash and have a sticky beak, a peek behind the curtain. This poor little rich boy from a fancy school who got it all so wrong. It felt like empathy, but also like perversion. His friends and family ran out of patience. I soon became the only person left in Jacob's life still talking to him. And when he wound up in the hospital due to his declining mental health, he asked me to be his emergency contact. He's next of kin! My partner, at this point, was furious. He begged me to just call the police. But I couldn't. I was deep in a story, and I didn't have a good ending yet. Also, I wanted to know if he really was in hospital, or if this was a tactic to stall me. Agreeing to be Jacob's emergency contact seemed absurd at the time, and more absurd now. A dare I accepted out of shock at such a bold and vulnerable request. And he was vulnerable, more than I'd realised. When Jacob first made an attempt on his own life, he had been cut off by his family and friends. His parents had remortgaged their home trying to keep up with paying back his many victims, his gambling debts, court fines and credit card bills. They carried the most shame. He had done them so much damage, in the way we only do to those we love the most. They were right to step back from him, and that's maybe what made me feel that I, a complete stranger with nothing but $500 to lose, was right to step in where they couldn't, to relieve them of their duties for a bit. Strangers can afford each other a kindness that is lighter and easier to accept, and the kindness of those who love us unconditionally. There is no shame attached to the kindness of a stranger. Or strangers. Almost a year later, I'd started telling the story, using a fake name for him, on podcasts and the radio. People started getting in touch with me from all over Australia. Some of his friends contacted me. They recognised the scenario and told me about his many other victims, And then, a girl named Emily sent me a message. Emily had also tried to buy one of the Pilates reformers. She had been patient and kind to him. She was someone who had shared my experience. I wonder how many of us there were. Emily and I connected up all the dates he had told us he was in hospital. We worked out that he was telling us the same story, regardless of whether or not it was true. And we'll never really know. I don't really care. I'm grateful for the shared experience. We wore him down, putting in the hard work, until he eventually paid Emily back all but $25, and me all but $60. I don't know how he got that money. Emily and I decided it was best not to ask. We were both glad we had helped him, even if only some or none of the things he had told us were true. Because assuming an arsehole has had a bad day or a hard life makes you feel better than letting yourself be taken for a fool. I don't want to know what lies, he told me. I'm more interested in what I learned about myself. I should probably say, don't do what I did. It wasn't smart, and it wasn't necessarily safe. But it was a wild ride. And now I've made a show about what happened as a cautionary tale, or as an argument for radical empathy. Jacob very nearly played himself, too, until I decided it might be better to keep a physical distance between us. You can only go so far with people you don't really know before you're taking silly risks. Jacob is now studying for a qualification to work in drug and alcohol addiction. He attends Alcoholics Anonymous and Gamblers Anonymous he is reaching out to all those he has wronged and slowly paying back his parents. He thanks me for showing him kindness, for showing him there are people in the world who will offer you a safe place to land, even when you don't deserve it. He is, for absolutely no want of a better word, reformed. When I did the show, telling this story in Australia, I sold out, moved to a larger venue, and made enough money to buy myself a brand new Pilates reformer. So really, in the end, I sometimes wonder, who scammed who? I still talk to Jacob sometimes. I think he's about to go to prison, but I don't know what for. He is always telling me half stories, and I pick up bits and pieces from his friends, but there are lots of answers I'll never get. Whatever happens to him... I hope he gets help, and not just punishment. I am, in equal parts, proud and ashamed of how I acted. I am happy with the wrap-up, where Jacob and I landed, and I am glad that I was there for him. I talked this arguably terrible man down off a ledge many times. I don't know if the world is better with him in it, but my world is better for at least having tried.
0: That was How I Made Friends with My Scammer by Michelle Brazier, read by Sarah Aubrey. Before you go, we wanted to tell you about The Guardian and Observer's annual charity appeal. This year, we are asking for your support to help refugees and asylum seekers rebuild their lives in safety. We're partnering with Refugee Council, Refugees at Home, and NACOM to provide asylum seekers and refugees with practical support, vital accommodation, and a safety net against homelessness and destitution. If you can, please donate now at theguardian.com forward slash donate. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Jeffrey Newland and Sarah Aubrey, and presented by me, Savannah Ayode Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.